Hi. So how many folks were here for the chalk art thing? Wasn't that awesome? As she, uh, uh, she came and, and, uh, and, and drew out for us just uh, that awesome picture of the Father's hand extended to the Son, the Son there and offering, offering that perfect sacrifice, all done in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's an incredible picture of, of God, the three in one working together from the foundation of the world. To pay the price for sin. There was this guy, he was, he was hanging out outside the old city of Bethlehem. They were gathered together, a bunch of shepherds. And they're sitting out in that place and they're thinking, you know, you know, life is about as good as it's going to get. It's a little chilly, but they have a fire and they're just passing around a, a wineskin, enjoying the wine and hanging out. About that time, they notice this priest come walking up. And the priest, as he comes walking up, he stops by him, which would have been, you know, their way of doing things. And he raised his hands up to the heavens and he began to pray, do his, his evening prayer. And as he was doing that, this, this old man in the, in the crowd of shepherds that was gathered there, he shouted over to him. He said, what are you doing? Well, I stopped the priest from praying. So the priest turned around and and said, well, I'm, I'm praying. Well, why are you praying? I'm praying to the most high God and maker of the heavens and the earth. And he said, no, I didn't say, who are you praying to? I said, why? I mean, don't you see the world that we live in today? And the, and the priest said to him, don't you know that God cares about us and that God loves us? And the old man kind of snickered a little bit. Yeah, whatever. So the priest come over. No, really, what do you mean? I mean, why are you so upset? He says, look at our world. I mean, we're, we're under bondage to the Romans. I can't do anything without having to pay a tax for this or a tax for that. My life is sideways. It's upside down. Everything that I thought was going to be right is wrong. All the plans I had when I was a kid, how I was going to have a family and have children, that's, that's all been stripped away from me. And you're praying to God. How's he going to help all that? How's he going to understand what it's like for me to watch as I'm rejected by my wife and she leaves to go to another family? How's he going to understand when I look at my sister who, who just had a little baby, that, that baby died? How's he going to know how to give her comfort? You know, you want to pray to God. I want God to understand what this is all about. I want him to know what it's like to be me. To be rejected. To feel what it is to see and sense the loss of life. To understand what it's like to be hungry. To know what it's like to, to just surrender to the powers that be. The, the control of this world, that Roman government. I want him to know what that's all about. And then he said, you know, that's, that's not enough. I want him to know what it is to be me. Because I want him to die like I'm going to die. Alone. By myself. Without anybody around. The priest just looked at him. And the old man, he went back to his circle of friends and they just passed him the wine bottle. He took a long, deep drink settled down his heart and sat down for a long night in the bitter cold outside of Bethlehem. And in the distance, there was a star. And if you listen, you could hear the sound 
of a baby crying. Because that's exactly what God does for us. There are a lot of people who blame God for evil and sin in the world. And they're upset about how we solve this answer. Well, why don't we not worry about that so much and realize that the God of heaven came down, walked this earth, felt what we felt, were tempted like we are tempted, yet without sin, that he gave himself wholly and completely to pave the way so you and I can have a relationship with God. He has done it all. All we have to do is set aside our stubbornness and submit to the love that he gave to us. Receive that gift. The Bible says we can't stand before God on our own righteousness. The only righteousness that will be accepted is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. For he who knew no sin became our sin that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gift that he gives. And today as we look at John chapter 19, we're going to see that fulfillment in history. We begin to see that in the first verse. John chapter 19 verse 1 says, Then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Just a few simple words. And really we can just run by it and go to the next part. But I think we need to realize, I think we need to recognize what's caught up in a scourging. There are a lot of people who teach that Jesus received 39 lashes. 39 lashes was not a Roman tradition. 39 lashes never came from them. The Romans would beat you and it would become more and more severe until you confessed. And for each sin or each crime you confessed to, the beating would get lighter and lighter. A little bit less, a little bit less. But the Bible says that Jesus went to his scourging as a lamb before his shears is silent. So what? He opened not his mouth. He took everything those soldiers could give him. Now you think those fellows were satisfied? I mean, they're used to people confessing when the scourging begins. Because after a while, they'll tell you anything to get you to stop hitting them. But this one, he wouldn't say anything. And all their buddies sitting around making fun of them. Oh, we can't get this guy to confess? You can't make him... Man, they unleashed everything they had on him. Long time ago when I was young, in high school, I used to think, man, it'd be so cool if, if somebody would come along and make a movie that really depicted what the crucifixion was all about and and what the scourging was like. And then when we had the, the passion come out a few years ago, I went to see it. Now, the, our church bought out a theater and showed the passion in, in the whole theater and gave away the tickets. So in a, in a whole weekend, three days, I saw that movie, I don't even know how many times. But I always found something else to do during the scourging because I couldn't watch couldn't watch it there was there was no joy in seeing the cruelty of what one man can do to another let alone to see what was happening to our savior king of kings lord of lords in one small verse the bible says and they took him and they scourged him they beat him until they were tired And the scripture goes on, 
And they said to him, Hail, the king of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. I got a slide to show you guys. Barry, if you can show that very first one. When the Romans would gather together, that one right there, it'd be kind of hard to see, but if you look real close in the center of that slab, you'll see something that looks like a pie with, with uh, the pie's slashes in it, like a, like a little star. What that was, it was engraved in the floor of the praetorium where they would do their scourging, and it was called the king's game. The Romans would gather together with a prisoner. They'd set a prisoner there and they'd cast their lots, roll the dice, and they'd move around in that pie chart. Each one of those slats was another thing for them to do to a prisoner. For example, they would make a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They would put a purple robe on his back. They would strike him. They would put a bag over his head and slap him in the face and ask him to prophesy which one hit them. That stone that you're looking at That stone bore witness to the Savior of the world, His blood, because the Romans used that game to do this to Him. Right here as we read in verse 2, they struck them with their hands. They said, Hail, King of the Jews. That's the game that they're playing with Him. It says in verse 4, Then Pilate went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know I find no fault in him. So what would you beat him for? But you remember on the 10th of Nisan, when Jesus entered into the temple, he cleansed the temple, and for the next four days, he, as the Lamb of God, is to be examined. And in that examination, he must be declared Free of spot, free of sin, free of guilt. So six separate times, you will hear Pilate say, but I find no fault in him. He's not guilty. He's innocent. That's what makes him the perfect lamb. Verse 5, Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Eke homo. Behold the man. As he presented to them, dressed as a king in mocking fashion, Savior of the world, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, beaten, bloody, wrapped around his back with a purple robe and a crown of thorns. He brought them to this archway in the middle of the Via Della Rosa, the way of the cross, and he presented them to the, to the Jews thinking, look at him. Surely that's enough. I've satisfied your bloodlust. But it's like putting blood in the water with sharks. You don't satisfy a shark that way, do you? You just make them a little more frenzied. So he lays them out before him. Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to him, you take him and crucify him. For what? I find no fault in him. When a lamb was offered as a sacrifice, according to what the Lord laid out in the book of Exodus, he must be perfect. Not your worst lamb, the best lamb. And again, here we have Pilate making his declaration. Hey, I find no fault in him. 
And the Jews answered and said, We have a law, and according to our law, he must die, because he made himself the Son of God. Why was Jesus crucified? Because he was the Son of God. The only only declaration they could make that would stick. Well, he's the Son of God. He declared himself equal in power and majesty, in dominion with Almighty God. That's what it means to be God's son. You share in everything that is him. You are one in essence. The son of God, declaring him as the son of God. This is his crime. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was all the more afraid. Why? Well, how many of you guys, when you were in school, you had an opportunity to, to study, you know, all the mythology around the, the Roman gods? Do you know how many stories there are in that mythology that talks about the gods coming and visiting people and the people mistreating the gods and then the gods wiping out the people? I mean, over and over again, Pilate's thinking, whoa, what a minute. You mean you brought this guy to me because he said he's God's son? So Pilate was afraid. And he's going to pull Jesus back into the praetorium again. He's going to pull him back in. They went again into the praetorium and he said to Jesus, Where are you from? And he wants to know, Are you from heaven? Are you really the Son of God? Where are you from? The Bible says, When he asked this question, Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and I have the power to set you free? And then Jesus spoke to him. Jesus said, You have no power at all against me unless it has been given to you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has a greater sin. Pilate, you have no power over me except what has been given to you by my Father. And in that verse, folks, for us, when we find ourselves in the storms of life, in the trials, in the tribulations, in the difficult times that we have to deal with, we need to remember those words of Jesus. You have no power over me except what has been given to you by my Father above. If we find ourselves... In the throes of cancer, ravaged by a disease, we can quote this verse. That disease has no power over me, but what has been given by my Father in heaven. Nothing touches our lives, folks, that doesn't pass through the hands of a God who loved each of us enough to die for us. We can rest in that. We can rest in that because no matter what takes place, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Not tribulation, not peril, not the sword, not even death. Nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8 lays that out for us. So when we face those things, we like Jesus, we can stand, we can follow his example, and we can say, hey, I'm not standing before you or under your authority, whatever the case might be, except 
Except that God has given you that authority and given me this opportunity to be a witness. To be a witness for him before you. So Jesus tells him, you you don't have to worry about it. The authority that you have is God-given. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. Pilate's desire was to let him go. We know in the other Gospels, Pilate was having a freaky day, wasn't he? Because all of a sudden his wife comes barging into the praetorium. And she says to him, Have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things because of him in a dream today, in visions. You don't think Pilate was tripping? You don't think he's looking at this and going, Oh man, what is happening? I would thought I was just getting up this morning to a nice quiet day. Next thing I know, I have a man accused of being the son of God before me who was scourged by my best soldiers and didn't even open his mouth. And that wasn't normal. All of these things are pointing to Pilate. Pilate, you are being judged today. What will you do with God's son? He stands in that place just like we all do. What will you do with the Son of God that is given for us? The Jews cried out in verse 12 and said, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. So when Pilate therefore heard this saying, he brought Jesus out, sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. To the pavement, the place of judgment. Why? Because Pilate's hand is being forced. History tells us that Pilate was a violent man with no scruples. And when he first came into power, when the Jews began to make a fuss about him coming into the city, bearing the standards of Rome, he just threatened to kill them all. Hey, I'll just kill you guys, so shut up. And the Jews pulled down their their robes around their neck and exposed their neck and said, go ahead. And that's the first time Pilate got in trouble. Word gets back to Caesar that Pilate's having a hard time controlling Judea. Well, the next time Pilate goes into the temple, he steals their offerings to build this aqueduct. An aqueduct that you can still go see in Jerusalem. He builds this, this aqueduct and he takes funds from the temple. And again, they all complain. So he says, okay, I'll give you guys all a voice. And he takes them into to Caesarea by the sea and he gathers them in this this hippodrome, this place where they would do chariot races. And as they all come in, he gives his soldiers a nod and he has the soldiers come in around him and he slaughtered them all. And the Jews went to Rome and complained. Two strikes. Caesar's not happy. Right now, the chief priests and the Pharisees are saying, hey, if you don't do this, we're going to Caesar. Now, you really think Caesar's going to be patient for a three-strike thing? I'll give you another at-bat, Pilate. No. But nonetheless, Pilate's going to make his choice this day, right? He comes into the Gabbatha. He comes into the pavement, the place where judgment is made. And it says, now it was the preparation day of the Passover. 
And about the sixth hour. Now here in the Gospel of John, we bump into a, a time issue between John and Mark. The way that time issue is solved is we understand that what John is laying out for us is time in, in Roman time. And what Mark talks to us about is time in Jewish time. So we're looking at probably the sixth hour here, meaning 6 a.m. We know by 9 a.m. he's going to be on the cross. At 12 a.m. it's going to get, or 12 noon, it's going to go dark. For the next three hours, by 3 p.m., he's going to be dead. So here we have them at the six hours, early in the morning. All night long, they've been doing the trial. Jesus hadn't slept. He's been scourged and beaten a couple of different times. They played their little games with him. And now they got him on the pavement. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. Listen, Pilate is going to call Jesus a king the rest of the time. The rest of the time, he's going to call Jesus the king. Hey, he's your king. He's your king. It says, but they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. So Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered and said, we have no king but Caesar. Now that must have just about made Pilate fall down. Are you kidding me? You guys, the only thing you guys hate more than this guy that's up here is Rome. And now you're declaring you have no king but Caesar? What just happened? Jesus was rejected as being their king. Folks, you know that Israel always does that. You remember in the book of Genesis when Joseph presented himself to his brothers and said that God had placed favor upon him and one day his brothers would all bow to him? You remember what they did? They threw him in a pit. Sold him as a slave. They rejected him. We will not have this man rule over us. What happened the second time? Every one of them bowed their knee before the king. Every one of them bowed their knee before Joseph. What about Moses? The first time he came to deliver the people. He, he killed that, that Pharaoh with his own, or not Pharaoh, but that Egyptian soldier with his own hands. And then when he went to his people to deliver him, what did they do? What, are you going to kill us too? We don't want you to rule over us. Get out of here. So he went to the desert for 40 years. And then God said, now it's time. And he came back the second time. Did the people receive him then? Yep. Folks, you can go throughout the scriptures and see the pattern of the nation of Israel rejecting her king the first time and receiving her king the second time. Here, we have no king but Caesar. So roughly 37 years from this moment, there will be no nation of Israel. Israel will be gone from 70 A.D. till 1948. Not a country. In 1948, in fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 38, Israel will once again become a nation. God said it thousands of years ago in the book of Ezekiel. In 1948... We got to see it take place. We got to see it happen for ourselves. Well, Scripture goes on. We have no king but Caesar. So then he delivered him to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and they led him away. Now that second slide we got, Barry, we can put up of the streets. This is called the Via Della Rosa, the way of the cross. That is the width of the street Jesus carried the cross down 
That's exactly how it was when he walked that cross. Only you need to swell the city to about 2 million people. It's the middle of Passover. It's crowded. People are everywhere. That's why they carried their cross through those alleys so that Rome could make an example of those who were about to be crucified. Everyone would see. As he made his way down the Via Della Rosa, the way of the cross, the scripture tells us in the next verse, bearing his cross, he went out to a place called the place of the skull, or in the Hebrew, Golgotha. The next slide takes us to Golgotha. The cross would have been at the base of this hill, in the front of what looks like a skull, where you can see the the two eyes and the nose. That's the place. On the middle of a mountain called Mount Moriah. You might remember Mount Moriah because it was mentioned in Genesis 22. Abraham, who had been waiting over and over again for a son, finally went on his own and made himself a boy, Ishmael, the boy of his flesh, through another woman, not through Sarah. And then finally God fulfilled his promise to him and he was given a son, Isaac. And Isaac grew, became strong. And one morning Abraham woke up and God said to Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your only son. Was it his only son? Well, no, he's got another boy, Ishmael. But you see, God is painting for you and I a picture. Listen to the picture. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. Folks, in, in biblical understanding and exegesis, which is a fancy word that means taking apart the verses of Scripture, there's a rule called the rule of first mention in hermeneutics, or the way that you interpret the Word of God. That means the way a word is used the first time it's ever used seems to indicate in Scripture the meaning of that word throughout the Word of God. What's my point? Genesis chapter 22, the first mention of the word love, is the love of a father who had no other son But Isaac, take your son, the one whom you love, and take him to the mountain that I will show you, and there offer him as a burnt offering unto me. So, Abraham, the Bible says, got up early in the morning, immediately went and got his son, and they went on a three-day journey, and they came to a mountain known as Mount Moriah. And as they hiked up that mountain, they came to a place. There was no city there in those days. No Jerusalem. No walls. But there was a hill. They came to the base of that hill, and he built an altar, and he laid his son upon that altar. And as he came down with the knife to take his son's life, the angel of the Lord the Son of God appeared before him and said, Don't touch your son. For now I know that you love God and that you do anything for him. And he set his son free and he said, There's a ram in the thicket. Bring the ram. Use the ram as the sacrifice, not your son. And Abraham called the place Yahweh Yireh. God will provide himself 
the Lamb. And then Abraham prophesied and said, In this mountain it will be provided. And that's the mountain you're looking at. The top of Mount Moriah, also known as Golgotha, Calvary, the place of the skull, where thousands of years before, one father offered his only begotten son as a picture to you and I of what Almighty God would do when he offered his son as that perfect sacrifice on the same ground, the top of Mount Moriah. They took him to this place. And they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side, Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Yeshua Hanatzaret Vemolech Ha Yehudim. It means Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. When he put that as a title above Jesus' head, I don't want you to miss this. In the Hebrew, which I just read to you, it forms an acrostic. The first letter of each word is Y-H-V-H. The impronounceable name of God, the Yahweh, the four letters that make up the name of God. Right above the cross, if you looked up, Yeshua, Hanazaret, Vemolech, Hayehudim, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, Y-H-V-H. Above the cross was the name of God. And when they wrote that above him, you're going to see, many of the Jews read the title for the place where Jesus was crucified. It's just outside the Damascus gate, right outside the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews. But he said, I am the king of the Jews. Why did they say that? Because if they wrote it that way, it would not have YHVH over the cross. They didn't miss it. They saw the name that was placed over his head on the cross. Why was he crucified? Because he said he was the Son of God. Even more than that, he proved he was the Son of God. And in the title upon the cross over his head was the name of the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, Yahweh, Yahweh over his head. And Pilate answered and said, What I have written, I have written. And the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. Remember I've shared with you before, when we look at the Bible, we tend to look at it from a Greek mindset, and we see prophecy as prediction fulfillment but what you need to begin to recognize is it's a hebrew book and it's written to us in patterns in pictures for example what tunic was made of one piece couldn't have any seams the high priest tunic 
the high priest. Remember the high priest when he made his judgment over Jesus? What did he do? He tore his high priestly robe. It was illegal for him to do that, but he tore it. That's okay, because there's a new high priest coming to town. book of Hebrews says, we have a new high priest. His name, Jesus Christ. For he understands what it's like to be you. He walked in your shoes. He knows what it is to be tempted, yet without sin. But he understands the weakness of the flesh. For he bore the flesh in a perfect, sinless life. He has become our high priest. How do I know that? Because when Jesus dies on the cross, the Father is going to go into the temple and do what? He's going to tear the veil from the top to the bottom. By the way, the veil was woven material 18 inches thick. It's not a little tiny piece of something. And it was torn from the top to the bottom. Why? Because you don't need them high priests to go before God anymore. Your high priest is Jesus Christ. He has opened the way that we might enter into the throne room of God with boldness. Just as though we were coming before our Father. Because we're clothed in the righteousness of His Son. So they took this tunic, one-piece tunic, and they said therefore among themselves, let's not tear this, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which says they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22. 800 years before crucifixion existed, The Holy Spirit, working through the life of David, inspired him to write a song. Psalm 22. You may understand the beginning words of that psalm. It goes like this. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Psalm 22, 800 years before crucifixion existed, tells us the very thoughts in the mind of Jesus while he was on the cross. So much so that it even declares the things that the people will say when they're passing by. 800 years before crucifixion was invented by the Persians. It was many years until the Romans perfected it, until Jesus Christ himself hung upon it therefore the soldiers did these things they cast lots for his garments now there stood by the cross of jesus his mother his mother's sister mary the wife of clopas and mary of magdalene and when jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by he said to his mother woman behold your son and he said to the disciple behold your mother And from that hour, that disciple took her into his own home. What was that moment like for Mary? What was it like for Mary to all her life be ridiculed that she had a child out of wedlock? That she was the only one that knew the truth. That she actually was bearing God's son. That she wasn't having a child out of wedlock, but that the Holy Spirit placed inside of her womb the seed in which the Son of God would inhabit, that He would tabernacle with us, that He would 
place on the flesh like a tent. And He would dwell with us. All her life, they told her, oh, that's a bunch of hogwash. You don't have, you didn't have the Son of God. We know who Jesus is. How excited must she have been when he, she saw him raise the dead? What about when the widow, remember the widow of Nain? She's walking outside of the city of Jerusalem. She just lost her only son. He's in a casket. And they're going outside the city. And as Jesus is passing by, he reaches over and he touches the casket. And her boy comes out. What was that like for Mary? Surely you see he is who I said he was. What about when all the people gathered outside of the tomb of Lazarus and Jesus stood and said, Lazarus, come forth. And he rose from the dead. What about the many lepers that he touched and healed that had never been done in the history until Jesus Christ came and did it? What must she have thought? Oh, finally, finally, I'm going to be able to throw off this burden on me where people look at me like I'm some kind of a foul person. And now she's at the foot of the cross. When Jesus was eight days old, the book of Luke tells us, they took him to the temple to be circumcised. And when they brought him in to be circumcised, they ran into this old codger. His name was Simeon. You know, Simeon had been promised by the Holy Spirit that he wouldn't die until he saw the Messiah. So every day in his old days... He would go to the temple and look at all the children that were coming for circumcision. Scanning the crowd. And every day he would go home disappointed. No Messiah today. Until that day. The Bible says as Mary and Joseph were bringing Jesus in, they brought with him two turtle doves. That was the sacrifice of redemption for the firstborn son. The Bible said that. They bring in their sacrifice and as they're coming in, Simeon runs down to him and says, can I hold your baby? And he takes their baby and he says, Oh, Father in heaven, thank you. For my eyes have seen the redemption of Israel. And then he looked at Mary and he said to her, And a sword is going to pierce your very soul. And he gave Jesus back. How many times do you think she wondered about that? But now as she's at the foot of the cross, she's not wondering about it anymore. She feels that sword in her very soul as she watches the Lamb of God die upon a cross. And Jesus, actually the third thing that He says from the cross is, woman, behold your son. And He points to John, the writer of this epistle, or of this gospel woman behold your son son behold your mother from the cross while he's dying some of his final words john take care of my mom and from that day she was with john till the day she died tradition says 11 years later somewhere in the late 50s in her late 50s mary 
went to be where her son was. Scripture lays out for us as these women are at the cross, John's also at the cross. I want you to realize that love rises early and stays late. Because the next time at the resurrection, who's the first ones up? Mary, Mary Magdalene, they're going to run down to the tomb. Because love rises early and stays late. And here they are at the foot of the cross. And so, after this, Jesus, knowing all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I thirst. Again, from Psalm 22, I thirst. If we want to hear the the sayings of Jesus from the cross, each one of the seven things that he would say, it begins, the very first thing Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. First thing he said. Second thing he said was to the thief on the cross, Today, you will be with me in paradise. Third thing, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. The fourth thing. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? By the way, that is the only time Jesus didn't call God Father. In all the scriptures and every time he ever spoke of the Father. That's the only time. Why? So it would point us to Psalm 22 and we'd read it. A rabbi instructing his students would often give the first verse of a chapter. And they would go and find that chapter. they go find that section of the scripture and they would read it and study it. Here Jesus is doing that for us. The fifth thing that he would say from the cross, I thirst. The sixth, tetelestai, it is finished. The seventh, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So here we see him coming to the point where he's thirsting. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled the sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, Tetelestai, and bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Here they would hand him the sour wine. Now while that sounds like another form of cruelty, it really wasn't. Within their throats, while they were being crucified, mucus would begin to build up. And it would become extremely hard for them to breathe. Now not that they're trying to alleviate their pain in any way. The cross is the most painful way to have to die. You die slowly, dehydration, exposure, and ultimately from suffocation. Because you can't open up your chest cavity to breathe anymore. So they would give them this sour wine. It would wash away the mucus in their throat so that they would be able to live longer. So that they would suffer more. So this is the sour wine that they gave. But then afterwards, he would exclaim. And folks, the only thing that keeps Jesus from raising his hands in the air like he just scored a touchdown is the fact that they're nailed. When he said, Te Telestai, 
That was a cry of victory. It's finished. It's done. Literally, it means paid in full. It's finished. Then he would say, Father, into your hands. And he would bow his head and die. Therefore, because it was a preparation day that the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now maybe you've heard people argue about how long Jesus was in the ground, whether when you measure the three days and three nights, was he crucified on a Friday, says it was a preparation day for the, the Sabbath. But here in John it tells us that Sabbath was a high day. There were two kinds of Sabbaths. A Sabbath, Saturday, the day of rest, and the Sabbath, the high holy day of the festival. The high holy day of the festival. That would have meant that that next Friday was going to be the high holy day. Thursday, he would die, be buried in the ground, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and rise again on Sunday. They declare it to us by setting aside that that Sabbath wasn't a normal Sabbath. It was a high day. It was the high day of the Passover, the Feast of Passover. That's when the Lamb was supposed to be slain, right? And that's when Jesus died on the cross. So the soldiers came and they broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with them. Why did they break their legs? The only way you can breathe on the cross is to push up with your feet. Then you can expand your chest. And then you collapse back down. But if you got broken legs, you can't breathe. So you suffocate. And you die faster. So they break the legs of the first thief. They break the legs of the second thief. But one of the soldiers, when he came to Jesus, found that he was already dead. So they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And immediately, blood and water poured out. And he who is seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth so that you may believe. What's John saying? I saw it. I saw it. They didn't break his legs, according to the scripture, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Again, Psalm 22. Every one of my bones can be counted. Why is that important? You know, in the Passover lamb, when they sacrificed the lamb, they were not allowed to break a single bone on that Passover lamb. Why? Where is blood built? In the bones. Then a broken bone speaks of the fact that there will not be any more blood. What are we, what are, how are our sins washed away? By the blood of Jesus Christ. And every bone being whole means that there will never be an end to the blood that Jesus can give to pay the price for our sin so not one bone is broken and we won't exhaust it there's not a sin that jesus didn't die for they didn't pay the price for scripture says so they put this spear in his side and out of his side blood and water and i'm sure everyone's heard that the medical examination of that declares to us that the pericardium had ruptured around the heart literally Jesus had died of a broken heart. But I, I'm not sure that's the point. Do you remember the first Adam? The first Adam in the Garden of Eden? 
what happened to him. God caused a deep sleep to fall on him. And from his side, he brought forth what? A bride. And what are the, the fluids of birthing? Blood and water. They pierced Jesus' side, and what poured out? Blood and water. What was being born? The bride. The church. The church, born, born from the side of our Savior, paying the price for sin. Just like the first Adam had a bride, Eve, so the second Adam, the second man, perfect, born without sin, finished without sin, he gave birth as well to a bride, the church, who one day will be with him for all of eternity. Well, the scripture goes on and says now in verse 36, Now these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, the scripture said, And they will look upon him whom they have pierced. In Zechariah 12.10, it says, And they will look upon him whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for one as one mourns for their only son. That part hasn't happened yet. They've looked upon him whom they pierced, but when Israel receives their Messiah the second time, they will mourn as one mourns for their only son when they realize there he is. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and he took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bring a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. You remember what Jesus was given at his birth? Three gifts, gold, frankincense, myrrh. Gold, the gift for a king. Frankincense, the gift for a priest. Myrrh, to anoint him at his death. Strange thing to give a baby, isn't it? They understood. They understood what the scriptures had laid out. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in strips of linen with spices, as was the custom of the Jews uh, to bury. And in the place where he was crucified, in the place where Golgotha is, in that place there's a tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So we have a picture. The next slide. That's the tomb. At Golgotha, Gordon's Calvary. It's not the traditional site. The traditional site has a giant church built over it. But this, we saw Golgotha at the top of Mount Moriah. And in that same place, just like the scripture describes, there was a garden. And in that garden, there is a tomb. And in that tomb, they searched to see, is a body ever decomposed in this tomb? Nope. Not one. In front of that tomb, you see a a little ditch where the stone would have been rolled. There's no stone for this one. Yeah, because when they got rid of the stone, they got rid of it for good. They didn't just... Move it out of the way. They moved it out of the way. They took him to this tomb that was in the garden where no one had been laid. 
And there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. Every year, guys, the high priest would sacrifice a lamb. There would be two lambs. On one lamb, he would declare all the sins of the nation and they would set that lamb free. That became known as the scapegoat. And on the other lamb, he would confess all the sins of the nation, dressed only in his tunic of one piece, sewn from the top to the bottom. He would kill that lamb, and he would take the blood of that lamb, and he would enter into the Holy of Holies, to the presence of God. Tradition says that they would tie a rope around his feet, and he had bells sewn in on the bottom of his tunic so they could hear him moving around. Because if the sacrifice wasn't taken, if God didn't receive the sacrifice, he's not coming out. And you can't go in and get him. So they'd pull him out by the rope. The high priest would go in and all the people of Israel that were gathered in that place would wait. Does God accept the sacrifice if he does the high priest is going to come out again here jesus has gone into the grave where no man can follow him into the presence of god will god accept the sacrifice we'll find out next week (laughs) why don't you stand with me let's pray Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you so much for this opportunity we have to come before you, Father, to proclaim our praises, God, for what you've done for us. That you, as our high priest, entered into the very throne room of God, to the place where the Ark of the Covenant, the very mercy seat, the throne of God, the place where the blood of the Lamb was to be applied. And you, Father, Receive that perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And you reached down and you tore the veil in the temple and you said, no more. You come to me now through the blood of my son. You come to me now based on your relationship with him. God, we thank you so much that if there are a thousand steps between us and you, you will take... 999 and save one for us to believe. So Lord, we declare to you this morning, we believe. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And by believing in you, we will have life in your name. Lord, we thank you for the truth of your scriptures For the truth of the word laid out before us, God, we pray. As we leave this place, as we go from here this morning, God, we pray that you would be glorified and magnified. That we would not look at the sacrifice your son made for us as just a common thing. That we wouldn't see your blood there on the pavement at the praetorium splattered around a game called the king's game. That we wouldn't look at that blood and just say, what's the big deal? 
that we wouldn't trample the blood of Jesus underfoot, but that we would realize it's so precious because it makes me clean. Father, it's my prayer this morning, each and every one here today that doesn't know you, they won't leave, they won't walk out until they have a right relationship with you. If the relationship is is not right, I pray they wouldn't go until they made it right. Your word declares, if you are standing before the altar with a gift for me, but you remember that you have an issue, a problem, something you need to take care of, leave your gift, be reconciled, and return. Father, I pray that you would do that perfect work by your spirit in the hearts of your people. And in the end, God, we desire to glorify you for all we're worth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to close in worship this morning. We invite, if there's any of the prayer counselors here this morning, we invite you to come on up. If you'd like to pray, there'll be someone up front to pray with you. And as we glorify the Lord, as we glorify Him, we just pray that, uh, that your week will be blessed. God bless you. Go in peace.